0: InsureTech Insider, episode 101. I'm Nigel Walsh. Today's show is a new show where we will be talking about the most interesting happenings in the insurance and insurtech from the past few weeks. Joining me today, as ever, is Benjamin Enso, Director of Research at 11 How are you doing, Benjamin?
1: I'm really well, Nigel. Looking forward to the discussion.
0: It's going to be a fun debate today, I think, just because of who we have next. Um, we're also accompanied by some amazing guests, as always, First, we have making a welcome return, Dr. Robin Kira, CEO of scouting.de and my number
2: one TikTok fan. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Didn't see you dancing lately. <laughs> we'll come on to that one later.
0: It's not in the news, but you do amaze me with how you always are the first to go at some of these things. So we'll come back to that later. Next up, we're also joined by Sean Milley, founder of Bright Blue Hair and Connoisseur of Tea. How are you doing today, Sean?
3: Oh, do you know what, Nigel? That's really pleased me that you remembered my obsession with tea. I'm really well and I'm overexcited about being on this call and also being on episode 101. Wow. Fantastic.
0: It feels like it feels like 101 is one of those things that you know it's kind of like isn't it, isn't it um, Room 101 or even the first episode? I know when we did last week's show, we were doing 100 and we started out the InsureTech show number one on what's InsureTech 101. So here we are, it's all linked back together again quite nicely. Well, thank you all for joining us. Let's get on with the show. First up, we have a story from TechCrunch about Ascend raising $5.5 million to provide a buy now, pay later option for commercial insurance. If it wasn't 10 minutes ago, I was genuinely tweeting about massive fintech news, that being that everyone is now buy now, pay later. I'm not sure there's a single day that goes by that we don't see a buy now, pay later option come to market for something or other. In this instance, it's insurance's turn. So Ascend announced a 5.5 million seed round to further its insurance payments platform that combines financing, collections and payables. First round capital led the round and was joined by Sousa Ventures, Firstmark Capital, Box Group and a group of angel investors. Ascend developed payments APIs to support and automate end-to-end insurance payments and offer a buy-now pay-later financing option for distribution of commissions and carrier payables. Home and auto insurance can be broken up into payments, but the commercial side is not as customer friendly, co-CEO Andrew Wynn said. Insurance is often paid in one lump sum annually, although paying tens of thousands of dollars in one payment is not something every business customer can manage. Ascend is offering point of sale financing to enable insurance brokers to break up those commercial payments into monthly installments. So where do we even start? Robin, let me come to you. Is this is this something that's bleeding in from the fintech world and is now or should be normal place in the insurance world? What are you seeing out there?
2: Well, I have two answers to that. One is a business answer. One is a moral answer. So let me start with the moral one. I see in the insurance industry actually currently a very um, small move towards financial freedom, financial responsibility, financial literacy, so that we as insurance industry try to teach people. I see this in Switzerland and in Germany a little bit. Uh, to teach our customers how to behave better with money because, come on, we have been around 500 years and we have have (laughs) lots of trillions of dollars in our balance sheet. So we knew a few things about, you know, making money, keeping money, and why not share this knowledge with our clients and help them in their lives? So that's what I see as a movement. On the other side, especially in fintech space, we see like the evaluation of Klarna and other payment providers, gigantic. Um, so my moral answer to that is buy now, pay now, later. I think it's like the the cancer of our society. Uh, I think it's it's a complete complete problem. But and from a business perspective, I think it's a brilliant move. And here in this especially special case. I think it could even serve the purpose for businesses to exact what you just said, break down lump sums in smaller chunks for business. So I think that's a great thing that, uh, and, and we see the the, the the intrusion or the expansion of finance and fintech to- topics into the insurance industry, loving that. But morally, I'm always very skeptical when I hear uh, buy now, uh, pay later. <laughs> that,
0: that's a super interesting way and quite controversial way to say that, Robin, I have to say. Sean, what do you think?
3: Well, it might be controversial, but I'm totally with Robin. I mean, I think first of all, yes, uh, the fact that it's the, the game du jour in fintech and now God help us in insurance, uh, that shouldn't blind us from the fact that um, there's a lot of soul searching and regulatory interest more to the point going on, certainly here in the UK around people like Klarna, and you will see action. I mean, the FCA has already said that. Robin's points around, does this actually help people to manage their money better and does it increase financial literacy? Well, um, I don't I don't think it does either, Robin, or at least I think there are some real dangers there. It's this thing of rushing headlong and buying, quite frankly, the sales pitches of people. Yeah, great. You've got masses of investment. To me, I'm really sorry, just because a load of VCs think, and, and other people too, as you've pointed out, Nigel, in their investors, just because they all think it's worth piling in, doesn't necessarily make it a viable business model in the long term. Wonga in the uk for example so the, the some of the things i'm i'm asking about and intrigued about nigel is one of the one of the things that they're saying is um one of the justifications or the sales pitches is that insurance is clogged up with paper so okay yeah we could have a conversation about how true that is and how not true it is and of course some of it is true but if you were really going to go to the heart of an issue that's about joining up and digitalizing payments across the value chain why would you not start with claims claims payments to customer including large commercial customers so i'm kind of there's loads of questions that i have around really what's underneath this
0: you're not you know? suggesting claim now pay later of course i know you're not so that's uh, that was <laughs> no, i'm, not. I'm whole saying claim of now
3: i'm saying claim now get your money now instead of yeah. having to having to wait right
0: benjamin let, let me come to you because actually when i hear buy now pay later i'm kind of like oh it's the next it's the Way in which we can access things for the next generation, but as an old guy, isn't buy now pay later just a mortgage in a different form? Am I doing that when I bought my house? Yeah, I think I think
1: this is is buy now pay later is just is a spin on this story, and I'm not quite sure whether it's come from a send or from the journalist. Um, This is instalment payments. This is about paying your commercial insurance bills monthly or possibly daily instead of annually, and there's a lot of sense in that. very little to do with buy now, pay later or you know consumer buy now, pay later. This is about installment payments for the industry. I, what I actually think is it's interesting about this Ascend story is sort of the point um, that Sean and, and Robin were both making about how do we make payments flow more smoothly and more quickly through the insurance industry. And that's actually what I think is really interesting here is Ascend is trying to build a platform to make payments move faster through the insurance industry so that customers or claimants are getting paid qu- quicker um, and that uh, companies are not having to tie up lots of their capital in big payments to insurance companies at the start of the year. So I think the buy now, pay later is a bit of a red herring, even though I agree with everything Robin and Sean just said. I think this is actually about making payments work better in the US insurance industry.
2: So it's, more, it's sorry, go on Robin i want to say one thing i mean um, i have deepest respect for every entrepreneur out there and i know um, lump sum payments at the beginning or the end of the year can be really stressful especially when you have tied up cash some i don't know tax reserves and whatever i really understand that but if your tech if your um, insurance um, uh, payment is a problem for your business you have a different problem than paying actually a uh, process in the insurance industry. You have a problem with profitability probably. And you know, I have deep respect for everybody who 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 does that. Um on the other hand, I think it touches an interesting point that the movement of cash in the insurance value chain, is an issue and that there probably there are billions and billions, maybe trillions uh, of money to be uh, uh, moved faster and efficiencies to be made. I mean, let's look, um, we had here in Germany, for example, Optiopay, which is a service where you can, as a company, uh, manage the payout. I mean, isn't it crazy that we as insurance industry pay billions and billions out in claims and we do not control where that money goes or even, you know, have um, scale effects. For example, in uh, car insurance, we see this over here where you have have certain um, um, repair shop chains that are linked to insurance companies so they can actually manage um, um, the Play, um, pay out better um, and participate even uh, the revenue on the claims they pay out so i think that's a large gigantic topic billions can be uh, used more efficiently um yeah but um maybe they have a wrong pr pr agency there i mean to to your point i think we're, so we're
0: all agreeing on actually the need for it because we can't necessarily always afford upfront these huge tens or hundreds of thousands of pounds premium or dollars premium but actually, this could have equally been an ESG story by removing 600 million pieces of paper or physical checks each year, and making better for the environment. And we we can't forget that the European payment rails are very different to the North American ones. So this is up and running in 20 states already. It takes a very different organisation in in the US than it does 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 the does Europe. So I think we've got a strong story here about bringing. Affordability and access of insurance to others through something that we've known in Europe for a very long time. Is that a fair way to say it?
1: Yeah, exactly. I think I think this is all about um, making the U.S. payments work better, making it work better for insurance company. Sorry, for for insurance brokers, uh, their customers, and so on. And getting out of capital, being tied up in lots of things. I think there's maybe another angle here as well. Robin is quite right. A a company that can't pay its insurance bills has got a profitability problem. But there is this thing of businesses that are scaling up quickly and therefore looking for maybe more flexible insurance payments because actually the amount they need to pay on insurance changes during the course of the year. Now, if Ascend is helping tap into that and helping fast growth businesses and so on, that's another very interesting story as well.
3: But I think the other thing, I think it's interesting, though, that I think the payments people will will be getting in on the act. Right. So you probably saw that MasterCard are doing a, um, a, a helping right in them with their uh, claims um, enab- ability to enable straight through claims payments. I'll call it that. Um but I think, you know, I, I and, and obviously, Nigel, you're absolutely right. The the whole way that the finance system works in the US is really alien to us. I mean, everything's still by check. For, well, not everything, but quite a lot of stuff is by check. It's still quite cumbersome, um, according to the way that we've grown up in the UK. So, yeah, that's all right. I have a worry, Nigel, about throwing in the word affordability there, though, right? Just because it's split up into installments doesn't necessarily 100% equate to affordability. Somebody's paying somewhere along the line to have that money split into instalments. Who's paying, right? And where's the profit going? So I think it's 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 interesting to ask the questions. And and by the way, am I right, Nigel, in thinking that over here in the UK already with large commercial contracts there are agreements for clients not to have to pay all in one go? They don't call it buy buy now pay later but i'm i'm i've been told that but maybe that was just something somebody I, told me i
0: think it was back to the point that was made earlier there's a very good spin on marketing in the instance in that everything these days seems to be buy now pay later it was a good way to jump in the bandwagon and get some decent press that aside i think what ascender doing is a, is a, is a really useful and necessary thing i will still say accessible robin talked about profitability i would say actually they haven't necessarily got a profitability issue. They might have a cash flow issue. And that for decades, hundreds of years, has been solved in many ways, whether it's on the acquisition or on the collection of cash. And we can go back to factoring how many years ago and go to factor invoices. And we've seen startups in that space. And again, we haven't questioned people's profitability there. We've, we've questioned the cash flow of the organization. If you want to bring it back early, it's no different than some of these fintechs offering you access to your payroll a day early or... Earlier than you would normally get it on a monthly basis or fortnightly basis, if you're able to earn or accrue over time. So it's almost back to the utility of business taking place and enable. And to Sean's point, that truly is the co- there's a cost in all of those things.
3: And by the way, guys, how different is it from premium finance? I mean, is it just, is it literally semantics that we're talking about here and maybe a little bit of wiggling around on the complexities of the contract?
0: Benjamin, can I throw that to you? Because I don't have the answer.
1: Yeah, I, I think it, I think it is. Um, I think it is semantics. I think what's interesting here is that um, Ascend is building APIs and trying to create truly digital connections between businesses. So I think that, you know what Ascend is really doing, and I think what's been funded here is this is an API platform to enable payments between commercial insurance brokers, uh, the carriers, and the customers. I think that the the mechanism is a bit. Semantics, yes, indeed.
0: With that, let me move on to our next story, and this is quite an exciting one. So we've talked about uh, diversity, equity, inclusion for so long. It's now nice to see a black-owned startup in the UK are hitting billion-dollar valuations for the first time. This a link from uh, CNBC talking about London-based digital insurance startup Marshmallow raising eighty-five million dollars in a funding round, valuing the company at one point two five billion dollars. Founded by identical twins Oliver and Alex Kent Brahm, is the second black owned company in Britain to reach unicorn status. Just 0.2% of venture capital funding went to black entrepreneurs in the UK between 2009 and 2019 according to Extend Ventures. We're pretty much surprised by this fact, Oliver said. It reflects on the ongoing lack of diversity in the tech industry. In the UK, just 1.6% of venture capital funding went to all ethnic founding teams between 2009 and 2019, while only 0.2% went to black entrepreneurs. So where do we start on this? Is this something that's, if we look at it from a, a gender perspective, we've often talked about female founders versus male founders, and there's not a day that goes by that I see this debate online on Twitter or LinkedIn. But when you go down to, uh people of color or black founders or, or or elsewhere we start to get into a tiny percentages of people that are are able to attain and attract funding sean can i come to you first on this what's what's your perspective here
3: so yeah so many perspectives on so many of those things that you've just mentioned Nigel. right so it's absolutely bloody appalling isn't it and yet none of us are surprised. And the really depressing thing is, you know, I've been in, obsessed with insurance, as you know, Nigel, since 2008. The diversity debates were going on well before that. The tech debates, tech diversity debates have been going on. So, you know, at what point do we not have to talk about this? Well, can't see it happening. Can you? I mean, at the current pace of change, um, you know, that 0.2% is just absolutely appalling. The gender stats are just as worrying. Um my perspective. So I guess you'll think you're asking me why. My 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 take on the why is this. All I can say is through my various exposures to founders through things like Tech Nation and various insurtech stuff that you, me and Robin and and no doubt Ben are uh, are involved in. The color predominant color is white, the predominant gender is male, the predominant language is English and uh, they look and sound and talk like the VCs that have given them the cash in the first place. It's a club. I'm sorry, it really is. And I say this without an axe to grind because I've never asked a VC to give me money for anything, right? I've I've helped other people who have and seen what's happened. So why is that? Well, there's all kinds of human and tribal um, reasons behind that that we could spend an entire you know session looking at, and maybe you should as 11FS, right? Um, I think it's really interesting that in the reporting of the marshmallow investors, where's Impact X? They're a black venture capital firm. They invested in marshmallow. They're not even mentioned, Nigel. Why is that? Now, I'm not saying that people are going out of their way to report in front from a racial perspective, Of course not. It's It's part of the co- it's just part of the of the environment that you come into. It's a systems change that's required. But something pretty dramatic has got to happen because there are many more articulate and vocal advocates and change makers than I am um, who've been working on this for a very long time and trying to have those debates and giving space to people to have those debates. There's something wrong with the venture capital culture that means we're still talking about this. And fixing that, how the hell do we do that unless it's a systems change issue, which means the people inside that culture and ecosystem need to look at themselves and decide, actually, this isn't good enough. And how do we, how do we, there's got to be the structures inside those organisations that mitigate against the kind of changed thinking and doing that will result in a different outcome. And so what we see, isn't it, particularly in 2020 has and, and 2021, are more and more VC groups actually saying, we're for black founders, we're for female founders, we're for uh, uh, third world and developing economy founders because the, the 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 community, if you want to call it that, of the established VCs is just a deeply unfriendly, impenetrable place.
0: It, That's my it's, view. It's such an interesting point, Sean. and I say that as four white Europeans on on a on a podcast talking about this. Robin, what's it like in in Germany, and, and how do we encourage more diversity into the sector? Even some small day-to-day interactions that we that we're not seeing right now what's it like we in in germany
2: well um I'm not so deep into the VC space, but I, uh, when I was at ITC um, several times, when we, st- when we were still allowed to enter the country, um, uh, I talked with Jennifer Byrne from the Female Founders Forum, and we p- support this uh, also, and and um, I couldn't actually believe what these female founders were telling. One was particular in military experts. I see she did like, I don't know, crazy cyber cr- things for the US government, and she said, actually, the military is very inclusive because... Because that's a competence what talks. And she had a meeting with generals. Then she went down the street, had a meeting with VCs. And she was treated like a little girl. I, I actually couldn't believe it. Um, so so only because I did not experience it doesn't mean it does not exist. But um, when it comes to, to, to Germany, um, of course, in the insurance industry, is male-dominated. Uh, male you have other industries that are female-dominated um, or, um, or as with diversity. But, for example, in the sales force, in, 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 in agents, um, I, I strongly believe that we have the situation that color doesn't matter because there have a lot of super successful Turkish background, uh, migrant agents. Um, and if you look at the numbers when it comes, not in the VC, not in the startup space, but if you look at people who have small and mid sized businesses, for example, the, the Turkish community, which is strong in Germany, is almost as represented as the average, which is actually good news. Um, so there is light, there is darkness. Um, in, I think it's always how you look at the numbers. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but Benjamin, are you seeing similar things go across the fintech space for the work that you've done or is it is it the same challenge throughout?
1: I think it's the same challenge throughout and you know you have these groups of insiders and they and obviously this is called InsurTech insider, right? but those groups can sometimes be impenetrable as, as, as Sean put it, you know there are groups of people who, through birth, through education, through what they've been through, are, are privileged. Um, and often that's color, but it's not just color. It can be gender. It can be a number of things. And those privileged groups often are not aware of their privilege. Um, there was a very interesting point, actually, with the interview with with one of the two founders of Marshmallow, uh, talking about why they'd had such difficulty getting backing from VCs. And the VCs were saying, well, I expect you to sort of hustle and get the introductions to me. But that exactly comes back to those kind of networks. You know, in Britain, we used to talk about the old school tie, you know, because public schools used to have as a very strong network and still to some extent do. So there are these networks that people who aren't from those backgrounds, people maybe from poorer backgrounds or whatever, or from have come from other countries, struggle to get into. And so, as Sean put it, yeah, people in the venture capital firms need to be saying, hang on, are we missing out on loads of brilliant talent here? You know, um, We as companies need to think about who are we funding? Who are we hiring? Are we giving opportunities to people? Or are we just hiring people who are just like us? And yeah. You know, I feel a bit uncomfortable, too, as a, as a sort of old white man talking about it, because what do I know? I've, I'm privileged. Um, so what am I doing to help people who haven't had the same privilege that I have had? And I think all of us need to have that kind of conversation with ourselves. What are we doing to help other people who are less privileged than we are? and looking out for that brilliant talent that's out there. And i tell you one slightly sad thing. I'm really happy for Marshmallow. One slightly sad thing in all this coverage is no one's actually talking about the really interesting things that Marshmallow is doing as a business because it's so appalling
0: that so few businesses with founders from different backgrounds are getting funding. I have to say, the what well, I'm with you. I looked at this first and foremost as a... Brilliant. We're now starting to get some real scale into the, what we can do to digitize and change the way we think about insurance in, in different ways. And it's great. Uh, I don't want to say it's been overtaken in any way, shape or form, but I think the work they've put into this in the first place should be applauded first and foremost. And there's so many different examples to share. I mean, I've got one from Martha Lane Fox, who I think during her funding process for something like Lastme.com was asked by some Mel VCs, well, what happens if you go off to have a baby? I mean, this is just unimaginable, unquestionable type things that us as men, sorry, Sean, would not even consider to to think about. And thank God we've now got joint parental leave, and actually, it should be a question that we're all asked, but not for the reason of it will stop the the, the business as it as it currently stands. And there's so many more out there. Um, and I
3: think the other thing, though, Nigel, is that women do it to women as well. You know, it's it's it it's a cultural disease. And, and it requires all of us to be learning, to be to, to be active allies. I mean, I actually think Insider should you guys should should maybe dedicate an episode to Black founders talking about how they did it and how they changed the system to make it to make it better to make it work for others. Um, it is difficult, isn't it, to be commenting on other people's lived experience when you know yourself, you're actually part of the problem, whether you mean to be or not. So all we can do as individuals is try to be part of the solution and to be active allies. And um to call it out, actually, you know, just calling it out, I think is is the very least that we can do. Um, and just to say, by the way, yes, I'm I, I think, yeah, brilliant. well done, marshmallow. But they're set, But they're underwritten by somebody else. They're not an insurer. That's a hard job to do, to change insurance as an insurer, I think. I think it's really hard to do it as an intermediated entity. And I actually would prefer it if they weren't regulated in Gibraltar for my own kind of, you know, just my own sort of feelings of let's have it in the UK. It's a UK business, right? And maybe that makes me a little bit jingoistic. I don't know. I hope not. But... Um, but yeah, let's let's look at the, the achievements of that business. But I think we're forced to hold them up as examples of what should be, right? Whether we want to or not.
0: I think you're therefore going into different parts of the industry, though, and saying, actually, they're making the best use of the, or the most optimum use of the rules that allow them to compete in the UK. And in this instance, it's a Gibraltar back uh, underwriter. So, you know, it's...
3: Motor's hard, as we know, don't we? Yeah, we know that. Not yeah. a lot
0: of people make a lot of money in motor. It's often a way in to do multiple lines as you go forward. So, look, let, let, let's, let's pause that one there. Um, Really, really great news from Marshmallow. I love the name uh, and so much more about the fact that we're just going after it and going to change the industry one by one. That's what we're asking for here. Let's take a quick break. Back with you very soon. <laughs> Hey,
1: folks, over here at 11FS, we're still working hard to build the next generation of financial services, and our team is growing quickly. So we're looking for a bunch of new 11s to join us. If you or someone you know is up for a new challenge and a bit of a fintech nerd like us, check out the roles in consulting across product, engineering, design, delivery, and strategy. You'll find all the details at 11fs.com forward slash careers.
0: Welcome back, let's get on with the show. Next up, we have the UK claims bill for COVID-19 business insurance, tops one billion pounds, says the FCA. This from Insurance Insider, uh, where UK insurers have now paid out more than a billion pounds, $1.4 billion in business interruption claims, stemming from COVID-19 pandemic, according to the FCA. In the latest set of data released, it was disclosed that 329 million pounds of insurance payments have been made, as well as 696 million total payments. The FCA says the figures show that 27,247 business interruption policyholders out of the 42,308 who've had claims accepted have received at least an interim payment. The FCA is publishing monthly updates on the progress of the BI claims payments. And in January, the Supreme Court upheld the judgment of the FCA's BI insurance test case that we widely reported. This was first brought forward by the financial Regulation in May 2020 to seek legal clarity on whether insurers were obligated to pay out on BI claims related to the COVID-19 pandemic. Analysts speculated that some 370,000 small businesses may be affected by the outcome of the case, with a potential £3.7 billion to £7.4 billion of claims on the line. So the good news here is that claims are, or payments are being made – Back to our earlier story. The problem, I guess, with this is it's slowly. Benjamin, what are we doing wrong here? Shouldn't this be, as to Sean's point very early on, if you've got a claim, just get it paid, get it out of the door and move on.
1: Yeah, exactly. It comes back to that exact same issue of slowness in payments. And there's an element of it's the systems, but a lot of it is insurance companies are just holding on to that capital. They're reluctant to pay out. They don't have much incentive to accelerate the process. And, and I think the the brokers need to be really pushing the insurance companies and really starting to differentiate on who settles claims fast. You know, because the claims experience for some companies is lousy. You know, the sad thing here is there are companies that have gone to the wall already because they haven't been paid out, right? This has wrecked some people's livelihoods, you know, and it's not the fault of the insurers that that the coronavirus came along, obviously. um, But slow payouts, when payouts were justified, has wrecked the lives of some customers. And I think it's right that people start calling out the insurance companies that have been slow to pay those claims. Um, Yeah, insurance companies have disputed some of those claims, they've gone to court,
0: um, but there's now no justification for being slow with those payments. What do you think, Robin? Has this been a wake-up call or has the pandemic itself been a wake-up call to the insurance industry and to the
2: buyers of insurance here? Well, I think when the you know, claims are being paid out, it's, uh, you have two interpretations of it. You can say the industry is slow and I have uh, filed a claim in November last year and I got paid in June, so this year, so I know what slow payments can make. Um, But on the other hand, we have seen uh, lots of fraud actually um, in the industry, uh, especially around business interruption policies um, and a big also legal question, who's actually responsible for lockdown, which is not actually covered, for example, explicitly in most policies. Um, Of course, there were some insurers, you know, thinking about, well, let's, you know, uh, do that as an excuse not to pay. But in some policies explicitly, there was a list of, you know, diseases and cases and risks described. And that was not a risk covered, even though there's business interruption policy on uh, the policy. And it's really ironic that I normally bash insurers for like everything. And now here I step up up to defend them. But uh, it's in the end, you know, uh, the big question, can actually the insurer uh, cover these risks? And by the way, there are certain risks insurers never cover for example, war. So, um, I mean, you cannot make a resp- an insurer uh, responsible for, for war damages uh, when the government you know, does it. So, uh, and by the way, it's not payable. Uh, the whole insurance collective would not work uh, when it comes to that. So I think it's a huge discussion. Uh, that's going has been going on, but we have also seen billions and billions being paid out uh, for those policies that were, you know, uh, quite clear. But also, insurers have done that in deals with governments in order to avoid large scale open debates and um, paid voluntarily, which is, you know, also interesting when you have a public traded company. But did the insurers really use that? I would describe it as the Premier League. You have some insurers uh, and and, and let's say the Premier League for a few years when Lancaster Lancaster won. Um, So what happens? You have um, large insurers that regularly do their great job that are maybe a little bit slow, but in the end due to pressure and um, modern sea suits actually uh, modernize. You have those small and mid-sized insurers or clubs that suddenly out of nowhere since with a new coach do a great job and they have over average growth and more efficient and and suddenly they become, you know, Premier League champions. Um, But those you have also those traditional proud clubs who are playing divisions below First League uh, or Premier League. And and I think that's what we will see and that's what the pandemic shows. I mean, we had multi-billion dollar companies that were not able to accept a digital signature. Come on, we live. That was 2020, you know, not 1820. And uh, I think uh, this pandemic showed the industry um, um, uh, who was fit and not. Plus, there was a dangerous drug and the dangerous drug was an artif- artificial low combined ratio actually due to a lot of risks due to lockdown that were not happening like a, lot, a great combined ratio in the car insurance feed great combined ratio in household insurance because nobody was breaking in when people were sitting you know at their desk <laughs> at the kitchen desk doing their job and, and in a lot of cases at least so um but, so there's
0: a couple of things in this though that just spring to mind and it's about Do people know what they're buying? And even if they don't, they then go to a brand that they trust that's got a reputation for paying out. And even some of those brands haven't paid out as they expected in the event of a non-known event. So I'm going to ask the next question to Sean, and then duck in anticipation of the answer. And that is, has the time spent appealing and not acting damaged the industry's reputation with its policyholders? And now I'm ducking. Sean.
3: Yes, it has. It obviously has damaged what little left there was in trust, which is tragic, actually, because... I I really believe in the social necessity of insurance. and, And I know from friends and colleagues who are in claims, particularly during the COVID period, where the world actually didn't come to a stop and it wasn't just business interruption. Those teams carried on being at the front line, talking to customer, helping them through total loss. People were still having car accidents. People's houses were still going on fire. People were still losing stuff. People still needed to take care of their cats and their dogs, all the important things in their lives. And it was no small feat to actually reorientate and go fully digital as a a sector, which there's lots of things to be really proud of, and particularly the people, and particularly the people in claims, I would say, at the front line. So arguing the toss over whether or not a customer understands, again, I'm going to use that word, the impenetrable small print, Yeah, I mean, clearly that is an own goal of spectacular proportions. And I know people are worried about their reinsurance. There are stories in the press today because it's Monte Carlo week about, you know, Hiscots particularly are allegedly, you know, the worst of their um, in terms of their exposure to reinsurance and so forth. Okay, fine. I, I get all of that. They're business people. But nonetheless, you're in it for more than 2021, aren't you? And 2020, you're in it for the long term with your customers. So you have to think like that, surely, and listen to all the people inside your organization, because I'm absolutely certain there would have been people inside those organizations going, we can't do this. We can't do this. I know what it says, but we can't do this. And they weren't listened to. I think the other thing, Nigel, that's really interesting that came out of this, and and the person who articulated it, as usual, was Stephen Hester when he was in charge of RSA. I forget his exact form of words. But basically, he was saying, yeah, we've probably let the brokers do their own thing too much on wordings, effectively. It's not how that's not exactly what he said. But that was the point he was making. So I think talk about wake up calls, right? What, what are the policies that are being written in your name? And do you actually really understand and do the brokers I mean what is going on in that relationship and you know do they understand what they're buying yeah it's a
0: really good segue into kind of the next point but actually what you're saying here is when we give delegated authority to other parties do we actually know what Control they have of the pen and what they're writing, and are we then able to report and understand those risks at a group level? I mean, like Hester, Amanda, Blank, of Aviva said last year, you know, we've done some some terrible reputational damage to the industry, and we should have we should have done better in our response. On your point about regulation, though, if you look at the UK versus the US, the responses of the industry and governments are actually very very different. Obviously, the UK has got a a single regulator, whereas the US has fifty, one for each state. Um, An insurance regulation resides almost entirely at the hands of the state commissioners, Uh, some elected, some appointed. As a result, it's uncommon for the U.S. Supreme Court to decide insurance issues. So I guess the question here, Robin uh, and Benjamin, for you is, does does the U.K. Supreme Court ruling show that having one regulatory body is a better or more efficient system than having, let's say, 50? Robin, you want to go?
2: Well, I'm in a country where we only have one, two. I mean, we have a lot of problems with our state's inefficiencies. Please, let's not go there. So I'm far away of saying, oh, we have the best political system in the world. I mean, we have the flood disaster, implosion of governmental structures. Actually, by the way, insurers were one of the first on the ground helping people and not, not government. I mean, again, I don't want to go there. Really. We have elections soon. I hope there will be some clarifications then. Um, so we have the, the luxury of having one supervision bo- uh, board here. I think um, what I really like about that is uh, you have, well, let's put it that way. I think there's a wrong perception about the regulatory body and the supervision authority. A lot insurers and incumbents think they're there to protect them. But I had the the, the boss of the, the insurance authority once in my live show and he pretty, pretty clearly said also on several stages already. He's not. His job is not to protect the incumbents, his job is to protect the customer. And if a startup comes around that does a better job, he's happy to give him a license, and he has.
0: I think that's a, a very good place to finish this. Um, with that, let's move on to the next story. And that is, if we had buy now, pay later as one of this month's buzzwords, the next one surely has to be ESG. So Still City Re launches ESG parametric insurance product. This from the captive insurance times. Steel City Re has launched a new insurance product centred around environmental, social, and governance activities to provide protection to boards of directors. The company addresses emerging risks and ESG compliance through reputation insurances and captives of risk retention and transfer. Steel City Re highlights that the recent litigation has shown that investors and regulators are authorised to consider ESG statements as material. This has caused corporate boards to be targeted both by courts of law and public opinion. The product is designed to help manage preemptive reputational risks facing corporate boards that are under pressure to publicly commit to ESG objectives. The new policy covers strategic managerial and governance actions signaling corporate values that may arise in ESG crisis, where an organization may openly set targets without the necessary operational or governance processes in place to meet them. Wow, that was quite some mouthful. But equally, I think a whole host of topics for us to dig into. Benjamin, let me start with you, if I may. ESG is almost on everyone's agenda. We've seen organisations being penalised from an investment perspective and so much more from not doing enough. That responsibility then lays on the board of directors and the management committee. Is this another form of Uh, cover for those that are taking board positions to protect them from um, such events. Where do you see this falling into place? I I think that's exactly
1: what it is. I think this is coverage that directors are going to need because unlike Buy Now, Pay Later, I think environmental issues are not a flash in the pan. I think they're going to get worse and worse. I think companies are going to come under more and more pressure from customers, from governments and so on to... um, think carefully about how they treat the environment, to think carefully about how they treat employees, their, their wider role in society. And I think directors are exposed. It's difficult to protect a company from all the risks. It's difficult for companies to get everything right. Obviously, there are companies that are careless and foolish and do stupid things in the pursuit of profit. Um, but there are other companies that maybe accidentally, you know, they don't see something that's happening in their subsidiaries. Um, I think this makes sense. It's tough being a company director. Um, you are exposed to some risk. I think having some insurance to protect you is probably quite wise. So I think this is a logical move and I think there'll be companies thinking, yeah, actually, we've got some risks out here that we, we're not covered for. It's a little bit, I was thinking it was a little bit like cybersecurity. It isn't really because cybersecurity could actually just completely destroy a company. But it, it reminds me a bit of the sort of emergence of cybersecurity insurance, Thinking initially thinking, is this needed? And actually, the longer you think about it, the more you think, yeah, actually, I kind of see where this is coming from.
0: It's a really interesting one that anyone who's on a board as a non-exec director, as a trustee or others is normally given levels of insurance to protect them from certain things. Sean, does this, does this mitigate or remove someone's responsibility to act responsibly? Or is it just as an extra barrier or a buffer? What, what's your take? I mean, it's, it's hard enough to get boards of directors or trustees in the first place. Is this a mandatory thing to get before you can go build a, the right board for you?
3: I see. I don't. I don't think the fact that it's difficult. It actually, it's not as difficult as you as it should be to get boards and Neds, um, Nigel. I don't think because there are queues of people all the time wanting to go and do this in insurance and other financial institutions. Um, I think it's de- that's not to say that that it's not getting much more complicated and more difficult for them to be protected. And therefore, do you know what I would say? So, so this is this is a proof in the ESG pudding for insurance, right? It's one of a, of many many indicators that insurance needs to step up to the plate and has a massive opportunity to innovate new products and services that play that play to risks in environment the E, social the S and G governance those those aspects. There's a massive opportunity there, and I'm hopeful that that business case there's something in this for us is one of the of the the things that finally makes my sector i care passionately about it um Actually, wake up, smell the coffee, step forward and take a real leadership position in these issues. And by that, I don't just mean signing up to asset, um, net zero asset owners, alliances or whatever else the club du jour is as we come to COP26. So I'm actually quite heartened. I'm seeing lots of this. I'm sure you are, too. And Ben, this this would make a really nice research project and, and another sort of discussion. Who is it who's looking at the E and the S and the G in the insurance world and saying, Actually, we can measure that risk. We can price that risk. We can mitigate that risk. There's a massive opportunity. Your question around, I think what you're saying is, it, should it be mandated, actually? Do, does every board need one? Well, I would say yes. And I certainly think every insurance board should have um, adequately trained people that's going to be difficult because there's a whole new market in a market economy there are loads of people now saying we can teach you how to do esg we can help you measure esg and the metrics in that world even in climate where we've had the science for 25 years is a wild west it's hard to look and see where are the obvious and credible places that you you could go for metrics so it's not going to be easy to get the right metrics and the right training but you need it and I think insurance firms definitely need it, partly because we're using AI and technology in ways I think is leaving all those board members open to a DNO claim of their own. Um, in the, right now, I think social um, similarly, and as we know from the activities of people like Insure Our Future and other really vocal advocates already on climate, it's a matter of time. They're going to stop going after the carbon majors. There's 40 cases going on around climate litigation at the moment at at board level. Um, Okay, at the moment, it's the oil majors, the carbon majors, but they're going to come after the FIs as well. So I think, you know, there's a real need there.
0: It's it's a really interesting point, actually. And I think my my question was more around if you're providing insurance, does that mitigate the responsibility of the individual? I, I hope certainly not. Your 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 point about metrics actually is a really is a really good one as well. I mean, Steel City re really measures reputational risk through its RVM index, and that draws on seven million measures of reputational value across 7,800 companies captured weekly for the last 20 years. It's a parametric policy pays out with the insured's RVM index value dips below a trigger value for 20 weeks following a publicly recognized adverse ESG event. So I guess, Robin, for you is, can reputational risk or value be accurately quantified in this way?
2: Well, sounds like it. Um, but m- what I'm asking myself is, um, is, uh, and let me be the devil's advocate here, is ESG the Pokemon insurance or the next cyber insurance, and let me explain what I mean with that. When Pokemon Go came out, there was a small insurer in in Germany who developed developed the pocket uh, the Pokemon Go insurance, which was nothing else than an accident insurance limited to the fact when you walk down and get an accident while playing Pokemon Go. Super great PR stunt, I think they sold six policies, uh, and that's it. Um, so that was something for a you know a, a, a fake risk or something something that did not work out, and that was, you know, everybody was talking about it. Um, of course, not with the substantial significance for humankind like ESG, um, but it was a, a policy and a product that didn't flow. But a lot of people were betting on it and, and, and praising it. And the second one is cyber. A lot of people made fun about it and beginning. oh, cyber insurance, what's that when my computer crashes? And now it's like a super th- big thing. And nobody with the right mind would ever doubt that that's a future product uh, we all need. I'm not sure if ESG is a Pokemon insurance um, or if it's the next cyber insurance or something in between. But uh, we will see. Um, and uh, and uh, yes. And uh, in the end, um, if there is a new risk, for example, that board members are actually subject to. Uh, legitimate uh, risk or even corporate rating. I mean no doubt about it there are corporate raiders out there that use ESG to raid corporations. Uh, it, but it's a risk um, if you if you stand for that morally or not. Um, and I think there is an insurance uh, possible. but the big question is how do you measure it? I mean a mortality table is quite obvious. Inside, you know, um, outside a pandemic. But um, how do you measure that? And I think I would pass on that question to all my friends that call themselves actuaries and I look up to.
3: Well, can I just say, I think credit agencies have been doing a great job of doing this for quite some time because mainstream investment has been making investment decisions based on this very stuff, right? So people and specialists like Vigio Iris in the ESG space who are now owned by Moody's. They don't need 7 million indicators. I mean, I, I do want, yeah, 7 million. How are you going to verify those indicators? And and how are you actually supposed to even get your head around that information? But we have a set of people who have been measuring and assessing and using and constructing ways of looking at reputation and other forms of ESG risk for some time. They're used in the investment world. And, and that is a direct risk because if your credit ratings are going to be impacted by Less than adequate ESG scores for the investors you're targeting, you're not going to have that money coming in, or it's going to be withdrawn, right? So, I I I I love your analogies, Robin. You're really brilliant at this. Um, please don't feel patronized. You're really brilliant at these these imagery. I love it. I absolutely love it. But there's no doubt in my mind. It's absolutely not a fake risk or a Pokemon area no doubt in my mind at all.
0: He just wants his next cue for a decent TikTok video, uh, which we'll come on to later. It does remind me, though, of Spotted Risk, which was a insurtech set up in the US for a disgrace and reputational damage. I think it was really interesting um, back then for how we could have celebrities or others getting out of trouble, having cover for... Um, saying the wrong thing at the wrong time. Okay, let's move on. And as we get towards the end of the show, let's round up on a few of the other stories from the week that we didn't have time to cover, but still deserve a little shout out. Benjamin, would you like to start?
1: Yes. So here's a story I really liked from uh, TechCrunch about Indonesia. So there's a startup in Indonesia called Ray Assurance that has launched a holistic approach to insurance with a million US dollars in funding. So, Indonesian InsurTech Reassurance is taking a a new-ish approach to insurance. Um, Once someone becomes a member, they also get access to a platform of health services, including artificial intelligence-based self-assessment tools, 24 by 7 telemedicine consultations for no added fee, and pharmacy deliveries. So, the startup has raised a million in pre-seed funding from the Trans-Pacific Technology Fund, and it's been created to address the low penetration of both life and health insurance in, in, in Indonesia. The co-founder, let me get this right, Evan Tano-Togono said, uh, when you look at the root causes and pain points, you're looking at problems that are systemic here. These include low awareness, expensive distribution channels like agents and telemarketing, high premiums and complicated policies. So Ray Assurance offers plans that start from four dollars a month, four U.S. dollars a month, and are available for either individuals or groups like families and small businesses. And the wellness ecosystem has been created to give customers better value for money and, of course, to differentiate it from other insurers uh, in Indonesia's growing insurtech market. I love this story. I think insurance should be all about protecting people from risks, about trying to avoid risks and manage risks, not just compensate people in the event of of, of a catastrophe. Um so I'm a huge fan of insurance companies that are trying to take help people and become healthier, lead healthier lifestyles to help them avoid risk and manage it. I love the use of AI to be smarter and to cut the cost of insurance. I love uh, the use of digital to cut the insur- cost of insurance distribution. And I love the use of telemedicine to provide better healthcare to people who sometimes have none at all. So I think this is fantastic. And I wish them every success with this.
0: Uh, well, as a beautiful segue into the next one, very quickly, so I want to save the most amount of time for the last one, but a beautiful segue around new digital technologies and, and more. In the most recent uh, Capgemini Annual Insurance Report, for the first time, 50% of insurance customers are willing to consider coverage from new age digital players, pushing traditional players to seek strategic partnerships to remain competitive, according to the Capgemini and FMA World and SureTech report. The report finds that new age digital players are offering greater personalization and emphasis on customer experience, therefore achieving maturity and customer adoption. In response, incumbents are attempting to strengthen their tech capabilities by partnering with or inquiring InsurTechs, and shifting from doing digital to being digital. According to the report, tech giants and InsurTechs have secured greater access to capital allocation from investors in order to strengthen their digital capabilities. If you've listened to any of the shows over the last three, six, 12 months, this is just a reaffirmation of everything that we've been uh highlighting from tech investment acquisition the desire to go to digital your just your story you just shared just now it's inevitable the trains left the station it's going it's moving again it's nice to be able to capture and show that change so that we can help the industry as a whole move forward so as always great to see from the and gemini team um, It'll be interesting to see when this goes above 50% and we start looking at 75 or more. So watch this space, I don't think it's far. I did want to save the last story or the best story for last, shall I say. Are you ready? Police seized 3,000 e-scooters from England streets in the first 6 months of 2021. This is for you Sarah when you're out there listening. This is also from the Mail Online, which is a whole different conversation. Uh, Police seized 3,002 e-scooters from England's streets in the first six months of 2021 because they're illegal. Um, This was more than five times as many as they took in the whole of 2020. Just 87 were seized in 2019 and 582 in 2020. Riders must have a driving license and insurance in order to use them on the road and they are banned from pavements and footpaths. The Met Police is leading the way, having taken 2,070 of the scooters off of London streets since January to June. Transport for London are currently offering legal hire scooters as part of a trial. Chief Superintendent Simon Oven said, the riding of e-scooters besides those part of the TfL trial remains illegal and potentially dangerous. I may add, especially if there's three people on them, one smoking, one drinking, and the other having a, on the phone, I mean, come on folks, where is our common sense? Who wants to comment on this? Sean, go first. Come on, help me out here.
3: <laughs> well, I'm not entirely sure what I'm supposed to be commenting on, uh, Nigel, to be honest. I'm, Have um, you tried an
0: e-scooter yet?
3: No, I can't. I don't drive. So I certainly wouldn't get on something that's motorised that, that won't protect me if, I, if if I fall into something. But, <sighs> I mean, <sighs> I think cyclists should get insurance. And I think people using scooters should get insurance as well. So there you go. I don't know whether that counts as controversial or even addresses the issue you want to be addressed, Nigel. uh,
0: Cyclists getting insurance was something we talked about a few episodes back. It's a really interesting one. Robin, e-scooters, good, bad and different, live in Germany, not
2: live in Germany. What's the scoop? Live in Germany, but I cannot. as hard and much as I try, I cannot get emotional about it. I think if there's a demand for uh, individual mobility uh, and people are using that, it means that there is a demand that has not been met before it means probably public transportation has an issue so again i cannot get emotional about it i think it's 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 a great thing it's a new let's give it a chance let's see how it goes let maybe there's new business opportunities around and jobs created um, it is a, a german a hobby to as soon as something new comes up, to complain about it and, uh, and 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 see all the negative sides. We have also seen not only e-scooters, but now the food delivery services. And it's only only the bad things people can see, and not the the, the good things. Uh, and let's let's have a look at the bright side of these things. Again, I'm thinking more people should have helmets when they drive it. But again, I'm not an accident specialist. Uh, I don't know. They seem to have some sort of license. <laughs> Go for it and have a ride. <laughs> Helmets and
0: bikes, I've, I've said, when I retire, I'm going to drive around with a boot full of bicycle helmets and lights so that when I see someone riding with a, with a helmet, I can give them one free charge and say, please protect yourself. That's a whole different conversation, but that's one of my personal ambitions as I retire in many moons to come.
2: Do you know what the police in Paris does when they get a bicyclist there? Go on. They put them to the morgue and show them the bicyclists that tried to ride bike in Paris traffic uh, the, of the week. That's a pretty, that's a pretty
0: terrible. Hand over to Benjamin. What can you do with that?
2: <laughs> I think I think there's
1: a lesson here for the UK in terms of learning from other markets. You know, e-scooters are out there. They've been invented. You can't uninvent them. What we need, as you said, Nigel, is we need helmets. Um, we need insurance. And I'm pleased to hear about the TfL trial to figure out, okay what's a safe way of introducing them that means they're not a menace and a danger to pedestrians and they're not a danger to the people riding them? Because that's what we need, is we need to protect both pedestrians and scooter riders from risk.
0: Uh, Look, and I have said this for a while, whilst I don't like them, I have tried them. I think they will be a feature of society and mobility for many years to come. They They have their place. I worry that the UK specifically has let the the e-scooter out of the bag as it was, and as a net result, is now gonna to have to play catch-up to work out how we regulate and make them safe for everyone. But frankly, the fact that we can go onto a retail store or online and buy them for a couple of hundred pounds very quickly with a little bit of small print that says these are illegal on on high streets or on pavements and should only be driven on private land, you might as well you might as well be selling a handgun. Which are also illegal, by the way, and also very dangerous in the hands of someone that's unexperienced. So Nigel, you're I think so we-
3: right. You're so right on all of that. You know, in Cambridge, which is famously a a, a cycle city, uh, no kidding. I mean, you'll you'll have bicycles weaving their way through traffic, buses, cars, taxis, and e scooters as well. I mean, we watched in horror as someone with an e scooter literally sort of brush the side of a double-decker bus and weave through traffic. I mean, it's absolute madness. It is madness, and you're right.
0: I was in town yesterday, and I have to say they are everywhere.
2: Let's leave it there. But let me be be the devil's advocate here again. You know, uh, I saw a funny statistic uh, uh, that showed actually was a meme. You know, I claim that I read statistics, but I only consume memes. (laughs) Uh, It was a great meme. And it said, imagine 125 years ago, you didn't need a license to drive a bike, to drive a car, to collect rainwater, to buy a house or to own a gun. About a few things here, you can probably argue that it's a good idea that there's a license on it. But do we want to license everything? I mean, we can, with licensing and pro- prohibitions, we cannot use people to use their brain.
3: Well, no, you can't. You absolutely can't. You, that, I'm sorry, humans just aren't made that way, Robin.
0: Let, let's flip it around, Robin. Should we not license or need insurance for cars that do
2: 20 miles an hour or less? No, I think cars is a different topic because it can uh, cause a super large damage with it. I think an obligatory car insurance, there's no doubt about it. And if technicians uh, find out that these e-scooters are similar risk, I'm the first one who says that needs to have an insurance, some sort of an educational license. But um, I'm not sure if the debate we have uh, throughout Europe is really based on let's have a neutral, uh, sober look at risk or, oh my God, something new, we should prevent this. And it might be fun, you know. On that electrifying
0: topic, let's wrap up the show. Thank you all to all of you for joining us today. Where can our listeners find out more about you, Sean?
3: Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn as Sean Millie and I'm also on Twitter, Nigel. Thank you for having me. It's been absolutely fantastic. And you're brilliant at this, by the way. But you knew that. But, you know, everyone needs a little bit of affirmation. Even you, Nigel, right? Even
0: me. We all need a pat on the back or a cup of tea. So next time in town. Robin, where can we find out more about you? If you don't answer TikTok, I'm going to ask you again.
2: Yes, uh, you can find me on LinkedIn, Twitter, and on apps that have no B2B focus like TikTok. Benjamin, where can we find out more about you? I'm on LinkedIn or
0: 11FS.com. And I'm on Twitter at Nigel Walsh, usually giving out about e-scooters. Thanks for listening. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. It helps to make the show better and others find the show. As always, if you want to join the conversation, find us on social media. Just search for 11 colon FS or search InsureTech Insider. Find us on Twitter at InsureTech Insiders or email podcasts at 11FS.com. Thanks very much. Goodbye.